Our reading this morning is going to be taken from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, we'll read from chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and they'll go to the end of that chapter, and then we're going to go into chapter 12 for just a couple of verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, one of the ageless and inevitable questions that are being asked over and over again throughout history is, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of my life? When contrasted with a geranium, what's the meaning of my life? When contrasted with the life of a fish who swims in the sea doing just what God made them to do, what's our life about? And during these few short years that we live, we must ask that question. Are we nothing more than a flower, a geranium in the garden that grows and blooms and fades and dies and then no one remembers it was even there? Or are we like the fish of the sea that swims and no one ever knows it's under the water there? We get the idea from King Solomon's life story that it must have been by all standards, every human standard, an exemplary life. After all, he had been uniquely gifted by God with all kinds of wisdom. He had power, he had wealth, and he had fun. Life was served up on a silver platter, so to speak. And yet, and yet, he was still preoccupied with this one question that seemingly drove him to the point of asking this question in the scriptures again, What is the meaning of my life, and how do I find the answer? So we pose that question for ourselves this morning. It's a good question. It's important for us. Listen to the professor. He calls himself the teacher, translated best, the professor. And he's got a bunch of students in front of him, and he's trying to explain to them in this particular chapter and all the chapters of Ecclesiastes, how he came to the understanding that he has. And that's important for us to take note of as well. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure and find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water the groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, 
When I surveyed all that my hands had done and all I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Wisdom and folly are meaningless. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What, is, what more can a king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And then I said to myself, the fate of a fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not long be remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Toil is meaningless. So I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, and yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain, and even at night they do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. A person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction for their toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment... To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. And this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 12, these three, two verses, 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, at least 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, we hear this line, under the sun or under the heavens. And that's a key phrase, of course, because it underscores the idea that there is a, a connection to life that is sometimes just lived under the umbrella of what we know to believe scientifically. God is above the heavens. We live below the heavens. If life is just lived below the heavens without any attachment to God, now we get to the heart of the issue already. To ignore God who dwells above the sun, above the heavens, is the meaningless part that Solomon is wrestling with. Think about it. This is your life story. If you're just living for the you, for your life, 
If you lived for 70, 80, or even 100 years, Solomon says, during those years, if you just lived for you and for what you get out of your life, then what possible meaning can you make of it? Because as soon as you're finished, you're like the geranium that wilts and dies and remembers, nothing remembers it again. To put a, another way, we ask the question, what is the story of your life, your life? If it has no connection to a larger narrative, how does your story make sense? We know a good story has to be understood, and we know it when we hear or read one. We also recognize a bad story when we run across one of those. A bad story likely has no discernible plot to it. That's my gripe with a lot of, a lot of novels. I, I, I read a novel <clears throat> or part of a novel not, well, several years ago, and uh, I won't name the name of this author. Some of you love her. But she wrote this book, and the book told a story about what she did when she got up in the morning. She watered her flowers. She picked the dead leaves off the flowers one by one, and she records how all that went. And then she, she uh, gave the dog a bath. Now I was about to page 30 or 40 of the book. And I began to think to myself, when is anything going to happen to this lady? Is her dog going to die? Maybe that would add a little bit of interest to the story. But no, by the page 50, there was still nothing going on. And I closed the book and said, this is a terrible novel. A bad story has no plot line to it. In your life, in my life, if there is no discernible plot line, and if it doesn't fit into anything else that's going on around me, then the question that Solomon asks is really a good one. What is the meaning of my life? How do I connect it to anything that has meaning? So here Solomon is faced with a huge question. And he wonders about the plot line. Because you see, if he just lives for those years and then he, he dies and then the next person comes on and destroys everything he's built, then it's a pretty big question. Why am I doing this? It's all meaningless. So the professor, Solomon, begins to investigate ways to get to the meaning of his life. And in the text that we just read, he, he points to three areas that I can point to. And he says, first of all, I decided to live for pleasure. That's the answer, maybe. If I invest my life in all the things that can make me just live joyfully, happily in this world, and so he said, I invested in things. I had good wine and great meals. I had a thousand wives and concubines. If I could enjoy every possible entertainment I could think of, I did that. So he says, I denied myself no pleasure. Nothing was too extravagant. Not for the richest man in the world, for sure. So he played hard. And so he says, what I discovered is that there is a momentary pleasure, 
pause maybe that I can not think about the panic of my life. But then it always came sneaking back into my thought. What if there was nothing after the after party? What if there's nothing after this moment of pleasure? Nothing but darkness and extinction. And more importantly, how does this fit into any plot line that's worth telling? So he says, no, no, it's not there. It's not found in pleasure-seeking. So he moves on. So says the professor, I decided to come at life from a different angle. I, I thought to myself, what if I dedicated myself to working at really impressive building projects? I will become a builder, a constructor of cities and palaces. So he goes to the project and he amasses great amounts of wealth, wealth beyond counting. And he said, I built houses and great houses and I built gardens and I built ponds to water the trees. And I did all of that as a way of trying to expand my horizons to make my life meaningful and worthwhile. And he says, when I enjoyed the, surveyed the work of all my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, there it was. Everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind because when I'm gone, who knows what fool is going to take over next and dig up my trees. Once again, a weak plot line doesn't fit into anything. So he moves to experiment number three. I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, just as the sunlight is better than darkness. Now he's turning to philosophy, you see, trying to think logically about what life could mean under the sun. And yes, he did come to some good conclusions. It's better to be wise than a fool. But the deeper question was still unanswered. What do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will no longer be remembered after death. So... This professor, after a long line of thought and experiments, comes to that terrible position that so many philosophers down through the ages have come to. You realize that all the way from, from the beginning of time, all the way up till today, those were the thinkers are the thinkers who are still puzzling over this question. And many of them, so many of them, are coming to that very same conclusion that, that Solomon is getting coming to. There are philosophers like Bertrand Russell, who's not all that ancient. He described man this way. He said his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are all but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. And everything man does is destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. There it is. Life means nothing. So just get used to it. The philosopher Albert Camus tells the meaning of life this way. He uses the ancient story of Sisyphus in the ancient Greek mythologies. Sisyphus was a man who was sharing the knowledge of Zeus with his fellow human beings. And so Zeus was angry with him. And so he confined him to eternal punishment. And the eternal punishment for Sisyphus was that he was called to push a stone, a big rock, up a hill all the way up the hill every day, 
And as he came to the top of the hill, that rock would somehow break loose and roll all the way back down again. And so the next day, he would start over again, an endless cycle of pushing a silly rock up a, a meaningless hill. Sometimes it's been equated with a person who does data entry every day, entry in the computer, putting numbers and details and facts. At the end of the day, the computer crashes. So the next day, he starts over. And this is the endless cycle of meaningless work. It makes no sense. Why do you keep doing those kinds of things? Such is the absurdity of life says Camus, makes no sense. We're better off just not thinking about it. But Solomon, no, Solomon can't live with that. Solomon has to have an answer. So he wrestles with the terrible possibility that if everything is meaningless, how do I find meaning? And then he comes to this conclusion in the very end, and he realizes, I have hated life, and the work that is done under the sun is grievous to me, all of it is meaningless and a chasing after the wind, so my heart began to despair. Maybe it would be simpler if he never worked on that quash question. The writer Dorothy Sayers puts it so well when she writes, despair. Mm. Despair is that which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing worth dying for. Meaningless. And you get the feeling that's where Solomon was. But by the time he gets to the last chapter of the book, the chapter 12, that we read just a couple of verses from, Chapter 12, verse 1 begins with, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you say, I find no pleasure in them. Remember your Creator. Mm. You see, there is something beyond the sun. There's something beyond the heavens, and that something is God, your Creator. And your creator God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Now here's the last verses of chapter 12. Verse 13 says, Now all has been heard. And here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Here's what Solomon learned. When he realized that beyond the sun, moon, and stars, there was a creator God who is in control of all things and has a plan for his world. And this plan for his world is worked out in history, his story. And in his story, he has decided, determined that he is going to fight a battle against the forces of evil that have captured this world. And so he sends his son, Jesus himself, enters into our story under the sun, and he begins to do his work of righteous living, and he dies for the sins and the guilt of our, the, our world and for us. And he creates in this world a meta-story, a big story, a story that has a plot line that goes from creation to recreation. And here's the Here's the key that Solomon begins to understand. It's important to remember your creator 
especially in the days of your youth, young people. Remember your creator before life gets so hard that you've turned yourself into a hard shell person who can't be budged from one direction to another. When you have no pleasure in the things that God might still have for you to do because it takes a little more work to do them. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember God and his story because your story can be brought into his story as a subplot. That's how I like to think of my life. That God has, in an amazing way, chosen me to become who I am because he has called me out of the darkness into his marvelous light and given me a purpose. Now you see Solomon, the professor, caught just that glimpse of truth. And he begins to see that everybody's personal story is, in fact, can be, one way or the other, is written into his story. You either are a, an antagonist or a protagonist, meaning you either are against God or for him. Jesus said it most clearly, if you're not for me, you're against me. So your life is either lived in the light of God's will for good or for evil. We are part of that story. And then Solomon says he's going to bring everything into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And that's good for us to remember. Remember your creator. So we have to ask the question, as we've been doing in these past couple of weeks, asking the question, how do we fit into that God story? How does our work, the meaning of our life, the purpose for which we have been given life, how does that fit and correlate with what God is doing in his world? And this leads up to the final conclusion that God adds the meaning to our lives by placing in front of each of us, each of us, a vocational call. The word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which simply means a voice. We get the word voice from that. It, it's God's call into each of our lives. And there is not a human being alive that God has not called into a relationship with himself and that God has not called into his story and called into a certain kind of work that he wants us to do. What we do with that call is what Solomon says, God's going to bring everything into judgment. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about the personal response to God's call. And he says, as co-workers with God, notice how that works. We're co-workers with God. We either build with sticks and straw and hay, and those works will be consumed by fire in the judgment. Or we work with gold and silver and precious stones. In other words, things that really matter. And those we will carry with us into eternity. A new heaven, a new earth, and those works follow after us. So how do we respond to all this? How do we ensure that our lives have meaning? Meaning not just for ourselves, but for the larger story that God is constructing of his world. First of all, we have to understand that we must, as our Bibles tell us, we must humbly submit to the will of God. We have to 
allow God to be the master, the captain, the chief, the leader of our lives. And then we ask God, what would you have us do? What, what do you want for my life? That's vocation, God's call. And how can I best be written into that storyline so that at the end of my journey of life, I will not have to say it's all meaningless, without purpose. Several misconceptions that um, have come out of this thinking about God's call, his call to vocation. First of all, oftentimes we Christians think of ourselves as simply passive actors in God's story. We're just like pawns on God's chessboard, and he moves us sometimes to gain a victory. Sometimes he sacrifices us for another cause. We're just, we're just actors, puppets on the stage. But that approach denies the fact that God has created us in his own image, that he's made us to be people who are able to think God's thoughts after him, and that God doesn't want us to just to be puppets. He doesn't want us to be robots. He wants us to be people who are actively interested and involved in doing what he calls us to do. So there are reasons and reasonableness to God's call. And so we end up asking the question, so what would you have me do, Lord? We have the power to choose or to reject. And that's the serious question for each of us. Secondly, the misunderstanding over the years has been that the only real vocation, that is the only real call from God, is to be involved in some form of ministry. You know, you're either a pastor or an evangelist and missionary or maybe a Christian school teacher or a Christian teacher in a school. That might qualify. But all the rest of us, we're, we're just day workers. We're just office people. But that's a total misunderstanding of what God's call really means. Any work, any work that fulfills the purpose of God's kingdom that fills a need, that promotes goodness and the flourishing of life is something that is involved with God's call into our own lives. As we pointed out last week, every kind of work that either maintains or God's created order or develops it, takes dominion over it and pushes it forward is for his glory. So whether I'm raising children or cleaning restrooms or doing scientific research of the highest level, if it's done for the glory of God, if it's done for the flourishing of his kingdom, his world, it's his good work, and it has meaning. Sometimes we use the word vocation to mean the work that I do is my occupation. That's my calling. I am a plumber. I am a office manager. That's what I do. But I would like to, to think about the fact that God's calling also calls us into what we do after hours. God's call also has to do with what we do after we've put in our hours and retire. God's call is never taken away from us until the day we die. I'm convinced of that. And sometimes the most important work that we might do 
is something that we do beyond our occupation or even through our occupation. Great stories that can be told of how God has used the events of their occupational life to train, to mold them, to rethink their attitudes about how they live their lives in the after hours. The most important work could be the last years of a person's life. And the final misconception, that is that there is something very mysterious about God's call. That we have to wait for God to speak audibly to us, perhaps, or maybe write it in the clouds of the sky, you know. That that there's got to be some sort of mystical way by which we understand that God is going to move us in a certain direction, and we wait for that, and we wait for that. But the answer to that question really isn't that kind of thing at all that God does. There are only a very few people in the whole Bible that heard God's voice saying, I want you to go do this. Most people, God just moved in a certain direction and and God through circumstance. So let me give you four different ways that God can move in your life and you ought to pay attention to it. First of all, you ask yourself the question, what needs in the world do I see around me? What is there that seems to be so obvious to me that somebody should be doing something about that? There, there, there's a need in this, in this place for some organization. So maybe I ought to be the organizer. And if there is a need like that, then maybe that is God's voice calling me into that action. Somebody ought to step up. Maybe it's you. Number two, ask the question, what am I passionate about? What, that, what really stirs my spirit when I see something that, that needs to be done and I say, oh, that, that, that I could do. I have had a long period of time where I have just loved children, for example, and I could do children's ministry. I could care for the children uh, in my neighborhood or in my family. I could do that. Passion. It drives so much of what we do. Number three, So what particular gifts do you have? I believe that God gifts each of us in certain ways that are unique to everyone else. Those gifts come to us in a variety of ways, some of it through our upbringing, our children, uh, children lives, our children lives. We we have a way of which we, we are just formed and fashioned by God in a certain way. And you begin to realize that, that that's uniquely mine. And if that fits into what your passions are and what you sense is a need out there, then you already have a sense of God's calling in your life. And then number four, what opportunities? Is there a stage, a place where I can do this thing that I believe God might be calling me to? What are the circumstances in your life? Maybe not now, but maybe in a few years, this could be the exact thing that God has and you start praying about that seeking ways to fill that position. When I look back over my little story, it's not all that great, but I have to say that it started for me with a surrendered life. I remember so clearly, one afternoon after school around five o'clock, I threw myself across my bed and I said, God, my life is such a mess and you can have it all if you want it. 
Now, I didn't know how serious I was about that, but after a while, I began to realize that God was starting to do things in my life that I was not really, I was surprised about. I often say that God not only opened doors for me, he not only gave me gifts and then showed me an open door, but he opened the door for me and and sometimes shoved me through in order to get me to do the thing that I know he had in store for me. And that's the way God works in so many of our lives. I love to hear your story of God's call into your life. How has God motivated you forward to do some more important work than you ever thought possible? God is at work. He's developing his meta story of the whole history of the world, and he wants to put you into a position where he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. And there is no finer joy, no finer involvement in life than that to hear those words from Jesus when you come to the eternal glories. Well done, good and faithful servant. So today, if you hear his voice, if you sense God moving you into a call that maybe is going to come from this church, perhaps, don't harden your heart. It might well be the most important work of your life for just such a time as this. God may be calling you into his service and creating a story to fit into his story. And that's when history begins to make sense. Life is full of meaning, contrary to what Solomon was thinking. When he remembered God, he began to realize, yes, there is meaning. And there's meaning for me. May that be your answer as well as you search your meaning for your life. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, once again, we humble ourselves before you to know and to recognize that you are God and we are not that you know the beginning and the end and the middle of every story, and that you have a way of, of moving and motivating us into the places where we ought to be so that our lives can have a blessing that's beyond human understanding. That in that blessing, we begin to realize that we have been used by you, and we are glad to be your servants, Glad to be co-workers with you in your, in your eternal kingdom. Glad to be a profitable servant of yours. And Lord, we pray that when we have failed, when we have missed those opportunities, when we have hardened ourselves against your nudges, we pray, Lord, that you will forgive us. And would you give us a new chance, a new beginning, Lord. We pray over and over again, Lord, a new beginning so that we might see the rest of our lives as having some purpose and meaning that goes beyond just living for today. Thank you for your story. And thank you for revealing it to us again today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.